This episode of Writing Excuses is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash excuse to start your free trial membership. Season 8, Episode 29. Is Writing Excuses out of Excuses Retreat Q&A number one. Fifteen minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Dan. I'm Mary. And I'm Howard. And it's 10.25 p.m. and we got a room full of... Awesome people! If you somehow missed that we're recording at the Writing Excuses Retreat, um, it might be because it sold out in nine minutes when we did it last year, so you um, did never get a chance to come. But it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> we are at, to even know yeah. that it existed. Yes. Um, and they have prepared a bunch of questions. Rather than um, giving them all a microphone and wasting time doing that, we took the questions ahead of time. So I'm going to read to you what they asked us. And the first question was to Dan, how did you go end up selling your serial killer novels in Europe before you sold them in the U.S.? Okay, that is actually a, uh, a fallacy, a misunderstanding of what happened. Uh, they were published in Europe first because of the way publishing schedules work. I first sold to Tor um, in the U.S., sold them U.S. rights, and they, had a, they did not have a hole in their publishing schedule for that year, and I can't remember at this point what year it was. So they had it pushed back to the following year. I then sold British and German rights very soon after that, and they did have spots in their publishing schedule that were open, so those books ended up coming out first. And uh, that was a weird situation to be in, but it was also a fun one, because when we finally got to America, everyone assumed I was a European author, and so they thought I was a lot cooler than I was. (laughs) Um, if you want to ask someone this question that actually did, I believe Steven Erickson sold in Europe first. He's from Canada, I believe. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong on this, but you can go talk to him about it. Um, so, second question was for Howard. Have you, um, some comics have a different storyline happening on Sunday than they do on the weekday comics. Have you considered that format, and why did you consider the, uh, choose the format that you did? Um, okay, so the, the, the six Six days, one story, and the seventh day, a different story, is an artifact of newspapers being allowed to buy the Sunday comic separately from the weekday comics from the syndicate. And so there are some newspapers that only get Dilbert on Sundays, but wouldn't get Dilbert on the weekdays, or only got, uh, uh, like, Alley-Oop on Sundays, uh, didn't get him on the weekdays. And so the cartoonists back then if they knew that the syndicate was able or was willing to carve this up for sale, uh, they had to do different continuities uh, weekdays and Sundays. Anybody who can read me on Friday and Saturday can read me on Sunday. Unless I, the I don't have farm, the internet on. Unless the server farm has <laughs> caught every fire. Other Thursday or, on, yeah. yeah. So I thought I, I need Sundays in order to do big exposition, and so mm-hmm. I really can't tell my story without being able to use big pictures one day a week. Now, I do know that there are some webtoonists that have done the other way. Like Dave Kellett, for a while, did a separate Saturday story or something like that just to uh, shake it up a bit. But that's the nice thing about webtooning is you can do whatever you I feel like do doing. I can do whatever I want. And I, sometimes I'll do a big picture on a Thursday mm-hmm. because I've... Well, that's what I was going to ask is uh, why did you make the decision, or was it simply following tradition, to keep the big Sunday strip model? Uh, it was tradition. Um, now it is... It, it is the 
kind of the chapter form that I work within. It's, it is an artifact that I'm kind of slaved to for pacing. And what's nice is that when I break from it, uh, I break from it for a very short period of time, and it's surprising. People don't expect mm. it, uh, and it, uh, it, it changes the flow of the story. It's horrible to try and lay into print um, because... When you break the format, you mean? Uh, no, the, oh. the, the format itself is awful to lay out. In, laying out schlock books is a miserable, miserable experience. You should all buy them <laughs> because we work so hard to make that miserable, miserable experience wonderful. Um, but uh, yeah, if I had it to do over, I would lay things out so that whatever I was doing would neatly fit into eight and a half by 11 rectangles. Um, oh, internet. All right, next question. You've talked a lot about being outliners versus discovery writers and those two tools that you use. Um, have you always been the way that you are in outlining and discovery writing? Did you transition? If you did, how hard was it? Um, did you try each tool, etc.? Well, I want to start by saying that I believe that those terms, while mm -hmm. useful, uh, give the wrong impression because it's yeah. not two different styles of writing and you're either one or the other. Um, I think every every author is going to have portions of each. They'll they'll sit somewhere along the spectrum. Um, and most authors that I know um, that that do a lot of writing slide on that spectrum depending on the project. Yes, there are two kinds of writers: writers who sit on the outlining side of this arbitrary line I've drawn, mm -hmm. and writers who sit on the yeah. That's but yeah. yes, but it is a fun. It is a mm -hmm. useful tool to talk about because yeah. they are kind of polar opposites um, that you can have a scale in between. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so I, I'll start this one off. Um, I've long, I started just by um, discovery writing mm -hmm. um, because I think almost everybody does. Now, maybe there's other people that just are outliners that just, but I, I just started writing books. And I think a lot of us just started writing books. And I started to find that if I planned out that book better, if I planned it out ahead of time, I was more excited about writing it, and it worked for me. And so I slowly grew into more and more of an outliner till I actually got so far along outlining that I felt I was writing the life out of some things. And I swung back the other way, which is why I discovered write my characters. And this is just, you know, a different swinging pendulum I use. And nowadays, there are a lot of books that, um, that I'll still, you know, just go discovery write, such stories. Um, like The Arithmetist was completely discovery written. Um, and, for me, a discovery write is I'll still start taking notes. There's no way I can not start taking notes about what's going to happen, but I don't start with an outline in hand. Um, but yeah. my big books, I still outline a lot. I also started uh, discovery writing and then discovered pretty quickly that for me, at any rate, uh, I write faster and, and am less frustrated when I know where I'm headed. Now, the last, the, the book I just finished, uh, Valor and Vanity, is, is an example of where I tried a different format. Because mm -hmm. um, it's a heist novel. Um, it's basically Jane Austen writes Ocean's Eleven. Um, <laughs> With magic. Yeah. With magic. <laughs> this is I've why read it. I've read it. It's delightful. <laughs> In any case, um, my usual outlining process did not work for this book. Because a heist novel has very specific elements, and we spent some spent some yep. time talking in in our, uh, mm -hmm. in one of the podcasts. But it has such specific elements that what I wound up having to do was 
listing the um, scenic require the the, the um, structural requirements of a heist. You know, in, in order to be a heist, you have to have essentially the car chase. You have to have the the reversal. You have to have you know this this whole list of things. Mm -hmm. And then I made a s and I put those down in the order in which they usually occur. Uh, just as I need I need a car chase, which in this is a gondola chase. It's in Venice. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> And then I made a, a list of set pieces, what mm -hmm. I call them, which are the really cool things that you can do with magic in Venice with glamorists and Lord Byron and Doctor Who. And, <laughs> and, and then I just slotted them in. It's like, okay, well, I think, I know I want a gondola chase. Oh, and that can go here. And so I slotted it in that way. And it was very alien way of working for me, but it was the only way that this particular novel came together. Excellent. Um, let's do our book of the week, which is going to give, be given to us by Howard. Um, the Human, the human division. division. The Human Division by John Scalzi, which... Scalzi! Uh, when, actually, <laughs> when I first, when I, when I began uh, subscribing to this electronically, I realized it really was the worst webcomic ever. Because it was coming out once a week, and there were no pictures. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to pay to get it. And it was really... It was really quite bad as a webcomic. Mm. As a book, it's delightful. Um, it's, uh, we, we talked about, uh, a, I don't know what order these episodes are going to air in. As we've talked about pacing and chapters and scene sequel, Human Division is a collection of essentially short stories or uh, novelettes um, with shifting POVs, but a constant theme, constant setting, uh, some recurring characters. Um, and it's all about political intrigue in uh, Scalzi's uh, Old Man's War universe. And narrated um, by Will Wheaton. And it's narrated by Will Wheaton, and it's available on Audible. Uh, head out to audiblepodcast.com slash excuse. Start a 30-day free trial membership. I'll get this right eventually. Um, get uh, The Human Division for free, and Will Wheaton will read it to you. Scalzi! <laughs> All right, next question was um, actually, why is Scalzi my nemesis? Um, for those who don't know, uh, John Scalzi is my evil nemesis. Now, I am not his nemesis, so don't get this wrong. I'm not putting anything upon Scalzi that way, um, but, um, but he definitely is my evil nemesis, and what happened is, uh, when I first got published, um, he and I got published the same year uh, in novel form. He'd, been, he'd worked in nonfiction quite a bit, but you know, uh, our releases were, were the same year, and um, I started going to uh, conventions and signing my book. And every, um, like, the, at the, the conventions, they have these bookstores in the convention space that, that are out there. And I would go and be like, hey, can I sign my cop the copies, your copies of my book? And they'd be like, yeah, sure, it's right over there. I'll go over and look. And there was this Scalzi guy right next to me, Sanderson Scalzi, who had already been there and signed his books. And I went to, like, a bookstore offsite, and they're like, yeah, that other nice guy was just in here, John Scalzi. And I'm like, who is this guy? Um, and then the next year, the, the um, nomination for the Campbell Award um, came out, and there was that Scalzi guy who was on there. And I'm like, who is this guy? And all my friends are like, yeah, he's going to win. I'm like, ah! Um, and so I raised my fist to the air and started, anytime someone mentions his name, started yelling Scalzi. And it became this big, fun thing among my friends uh, to the point that um, we dubbed one of my pens Scalzi Bane. <laughs> um, <laughs> which uh, we, we joke was the one true pen which was someday to just slay John Scalzi. I'd never met the guy at this point. And then I got to Worldcon, and he was so nice. I'm like, oh, no, my evil nemesis is a nice guy. What does that make me? Um, 
that, that makes you the villain. That makes me the villain, yeah. Um, and my friends, Dan, do you want to tell you, were you involved in this stupid thing? Are you talking about the, the Scalzi the Award? That's Award? exactly yes. what I wanted to yeah, say. Yeah, go ahead. Um, well, one of our other friends, Isaac and I, decided at the, the Worldcon where they were both nominated for the Campbell, and, and we all knew Scalzi was going to win, uh, we felt bad for Brandon. We wanted him to win something, so we figured he he should win the Scalzi Award. <laughs> and this was at uh, this was at the L.A. Con, yep. so it was just like two blocks from the little Disneyland thingy, and they had a Lego store. So we went over to the Lego store and built a little rocket ship that looked like a Hugo Award out of Legos. But we thought this would be so much cooler if we could get Scalzi to sign it. So we took one of the key Lego pieces and tracked him down at Worldcon and, and, you know, handed him a Lego and said, could you sign this for us? And he stared at that for a good 30 seconds and finally said, this is going to come back and bite me, isn't it? <laughs> so. But he did sign it. And then we later got a picture of uh, him and Brandon and the Scalzi Award and Scalzi Bane and Scalzi, of course, wearing his little Campbell tiara. Yeah, and um, it's I still have the Scalzi Award, and they dubbed it the person to lose to John Scalzi by the greatest margin because I was last place um, oh. for the Campbell Award, um, and so so yes, I, I may have to have passed that on. I should have passed As that John on. As John Scalzi yeah. pointed out when we had dinner with him in yes. Salt Lake, being his. Having him as a nemesis has worked out pretty well for you career-wise. <laughs> yes, it has. It has. Uh, more people should choose John Scalzi as their nemesis. Yeah. Uh, let's get back to something serious so we can end this on a note that isn't about me doing something stupid. Um, <laughs> um, Dan and Howard, when you had full-time work, what was the best way to reset when you came home? Mary, did you ever have a full-time job like the puppeting, puppeteering? Yeah. Well, so this puppeting. can apply to you, pup puppeteering. Uh, I don't know what the proper term is. Puppeteering is correct. Okay. When you came home, I thought how we weren't going to end on you doing stupid things. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm going to give you a chance to speak, oh. so you can show me up with stupidity. <laughs> um, no problem. Um, when what is the best way to reset when you came home, uh, particularly when your job used the same parts of your brain that writing does? Um. Yeah, I I did then a lot of what I do now, which is I broke up my writing with video games. Uh, and that, you know, today I'll, I'll usually do something like Diablo or StarCraft. Back then, I would be, you know, so beaten down by how much I hated my job in my cubicle and whatever that I would come home and play shooter games and just blow everyone up for a half an hour. And then I'd say, okay, I'm ready. And then I'd go back and write some more stuff. See, instead of, instead of doing the virtual killing like that, I commuted for 15 minutes on the freeway. Um, you may have read about that. Uh, uh, no, I would just, I'd, on the commute, I would try and put aside all the junk from work and start running character dialogue in my head. Um, and maybe I was cursing at the other drivers and driving too fast, but it was an activity that divided my day into two pieces. And then I got home, and I, I'll be quite honest, I, I have lots and lots of regrets because during that time period, I was at a 60 to 70 hour a week uh, high power career position. I was managing a $100 million business unit for Novell, and it was very soul sucking. and. Resetting was hard, 
And then I got home and paid no attention to my family for another 20 or 30 hours a week in order to create the comic. And that's four years of my life that, I mean, I love where I am now, but I do not get that time back. And if I'd known what that was going to cost uh, in terms of relationships with my kids and my wife, I don't know that I could do it again. Wow. It and was we might really be podcasting hard. with Dashner right now. You might be podcasting with Dashner. Yeah. <laughs> Mary, any advice here? Yeah. Um, so you had asked me if I had a full-time job. And mm -hmm. actually, when I started writing, was uh, I, I had a wrist injury and had a mm. desk job for a while. Um, and that was actually when I started writing. I found that way easier than balancing it with my puppetry career. Okay. Uh, because I was I was doing sales for Portland Spirit River Cruise Dinner Boat, um, and uh, and it was it didn't use any of the same parts of my brain, so that was fine. And I I, I biked mm -hmm. to work, and so you know resetting while biking. The puppetry when I am performing it doesn't use the same part of my brain, but when I am designing it uses exactly the same parts mm -hmm. of my brain. And, um, and, and like when I have projects due in both puppetry and fiction, it is very hard to balance those two. So what I do is I usually try to do some kind of physical activity, uh, you know, washing dishes, going for a walk, um, something that gives me a, uh, gets the blood moving and gives me time to switch gears. And, and, and I will f force myself, I have to actually start thinking, okay, you know, start um, querying myself, and we talked about this uh, actually uh, to our students today, but querying myself about how to, you know, what my characters were going to do mm -hmm. in order to switch the gear. And then coming back, I would have to go, okay, and the knee joint is going to go where, and how am I touching the eagle balls? Oh, God. Okay. Well, we are going to end there. Um, it's a ball and socket joint. Okay. It's okay. a ball and socket joint on an eagle. Got it. Got it. Got it. That's totally what I was thinking of. <laughs> Very American eagle. Yes, yes. yes. They were, yeah, it was actually an eagle for Neil Gaiman. Oh, nice. Neil Gaiman's eagle balls. <laughs> That totally Clean sounds rating. like a microbrew kind of. <laughs> oh, that's a great microbrew. Oh, that should that's actually Scalzi's next band. <laughs> and Dan, you have to follow that up with a writing prompt. I have to follow uh, writing prompt. <laughs> Personally, I was just fascinated by the idea that that Mary got a wrist injury puppeteering, and so like, was it opening opening the puppet's mouth too wide that did it? So, <laughs> Write a story in which uh, someone is, is uh, doing a puppeteering move so extreme that they, uh, they end up hospitalized. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This has been Right Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a longstanding and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, 
And I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. 